Our text this morning is James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Father, help us this morning to think well your thoughts after you, to think well about what you reveal in these words to us, your church, your people, and Crossway Fellowship. Help us to hear them and do them. In your name we pray, amen. Well, James is introducing a new subject here in chapter 2, verse 1, with this phrase, my brothers. He is turning from the subject of being, being doers of the word, to partiality. So partiality then is the second of four subjects that James uses to expose our double-mindedness, where we need to be made whole as opposed to being fractured or duplicitous within ourselves. The first was how we respond to God's word. Now, we are all guilty of prejudice. Every one of us is guilty at some time or another of judging others because of their appearance or because of their status. Every one of us has unfairly judged a person's character or motives based on some superficial criteria, how they were dressed, their skin color, their education, whatever it might be. And worst of all, while discriminating against them with ungodly thoughts in our hearts, we have treated them unfairly. This word partiality means literally receiving the face. And it's kind of an idiom that is talking about making judgments based on superficial appearance. Perhaps the picture in it is taking the appearance of the face 
without considering the heart or the motives behind it. We have our own saying, don't we? Our own little proverbial saying, don't judge a book by its cover. That's kind of what this phrase is picturing, this idiom, receiving the face, partiality. Other words that it could be translated as favoritism or maybe even better, discrimination. To show partiality is to discriminate against someone. James is concerned here in chapter 2 with something far more hideous, something far uglier than just a judgmental first impression or jumping to conclusions about someone. It is an affront. It is absurd to follow the Lord of glory and play favorites, to discriminate against some people. Just as it is the height of absurdity to hear the word of God and not obey it and to think that you've achieved righteousness because you've heard the word, to think you have received the implanted word because you've heard it but neglect to do it is absurd. In the same way, it is completely ludicrous to claim faith in the Lord of glory, but discriminate against other people. James says, stop doing this. Stop discriminating against others while holding your faith in Christ, who is the Lord of glory. Now, this is a broad command. Like I said, we can discriminate against others in a lot of different ways. We might discriminate against someone's mental capacities, their emotional capacities or disabilities. We may discriminate against somebody's nationality. We might discriminate against skin color or race. This playing favorites is inconsistent with the character of the Lord, and thus it is inconsistent with faith in him. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and he shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Perhaps even more relevant is Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. The book of Leviticus, the law is saying you, you shouldn't even be partial for the poor. Nor should you discriminate against the wealthy. That's neither is justice. If you look down in verse 8, here you will see that James will quote from this same passage, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus 19, verse 18. So this passage in Leviticus, I think, is behind James's thinking, behind his writing. Now, this command to not show partiality is particularly relevant for our culture in regards to race, isn't it? We have, 
we are in turmoil as a nation over racial discrimination. Now, regardless, and I understand that there are different positions on how to respond to racial discrimination, okay? Even within the church. Even here at Crossway, I know that there is some fracture, okay, about how to respond to what has become a very tumultuous public debate over race. In some ways, that's beyond the scope here, but let me just say that the issue of partiality does play a part here. What James is saying does speak to us about how we discriminate against other people. Now, the problem with James chapter 2 and applying it to race is that if you take the racial issue and you just cram it into James chapter 2, it doesn't necessarily fit because he's going to say some very specific things about poverty and wealth. In James's context, and to the churches to whom he's writing, it is an issue of socioeconomic discrimination. And if you just take racial discrimination and just kind of cram it in here, it doesn't quite fit. But in its broad command, the church is warned. We are being commanded to not discriminate, to not show partiality. And that extends to all criteria that we might use. This command is relevant to us, perhaps now more than ever. James then is going to level three charges against partiality so that we will treat one another without discrimination. And by the way, uh, for those of you who are wondering the race and those kinds of things, are we going to leave that unaddressed? No. Okay, even if not this morning. Uh, by the way, too, for some of you who may not know, I did preach about racism a few years ago. I don't even remember the year. I think it was 2017 or 18. It was when, um, in the news, there, uh, we were told that there was an attack on a church back in West Virginia. You may remember that. As a result of that, and the uh, turmoil that was caused by that, I did preach on racism. You can find that message, okay? Now, that doesn't address everything that's on the table today in our culture, but you can at least go back. You can see and understand where as a church and biblically we stand on the issue of racism in and of itself, okay? Now, there are other issues to be addressed. As a leadership, we are talking about those things, okay? And I want you to know that. One of the reasons that we are taking our time is that we are, we are seeking the Lord in a way that we do not want to be reactionary, okay? And we want to be wise. And I've had conversations with some of you, whether as individuals or as smaller groups, about some of these things, okay? So I'm not neglecting it this morning, but if I do it, we'll be here for three hours, James levels three charges against partiality so that we will treat one another without discrimination. Charge number one, partiality corrupts God's community. Partiality corrupts God's community. In verses two through four, James presents a possible scenario. If, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly. 
The implication, though, is that this represents actual incidents among the believers to whom he's writing. That this has actually happened. That James has probably received reports of these kinds of things happening. And with this example, he is not only confronting and addressing those acts, but he's also confronting all kinds of ways that discrimination was taking place. And the scene here is your assembly, which I think is probably the weekly gathering for worship and instruction in the scriptures, the earliest church services. The word for assembly here is synagogue, but that's because that's the place where they would have met in the local synagogue. Again, James is writing very early in the life of the church. They were still meeting in synagogues. They were still identified sometimes with Jewishness. It could also be that James has in mind a gathering of the church in which certain judicial matters were being decided. Maybe certain wrongs were being righted or certain conflicts were being addressed. The church was a place for doing that. But regardless of which one it is, though it's probably just the weekly worship, in walks one person with a gold ring, literally gold-fingered. The gold-fingered man, or Mr. Goldfinger. Mr. Goldfinger walks in, and he has fine clothes or bright clothes, meaning they're clean, they're colored, they probably have been dyed with rich colors, which is a sign of having money in this culture. He walks in, obviously wealthy, obviously influential. But also, there enters a person in shabby clothing, literally filthy clothes. Maybe someone who's homeless. And the wealthy person is given special attention. They're greeted warmly. They're given a seat. They're served coffee. The poor person is simply told, you stand over there. Why don't you just make yourself scarce? Or, even more humiliating, sit at my feet or literally by my footstool. So the command to stop showing favoritism can be applied broadly, but James is specifically confronting. He is seeing the socioeconomic discrimination. It is favoritism based on wealth over and against poverty, which reflects their current context, right? Because what's happened is that many of them have been forced to relocate out of Palestine, out of Jerusalem, and having to start life over again. They're having to adjust to new social hierarchies. They are made vulnerable in new ways, while others are vying for influence and trying to establish themselves. So James is writing to poor believers. He's writing to those who find themselves at the mercy of wealthy landowners, managers, those who are influential in society, and they are being persecuted. They're being taken advantage of. James is also writing to wealthy believers. Those who were able to relocate or perhaps 
not part of the migration. Maybe they had already lived in these places, were Christians, and were already established. And they are caught between the influence of their wealthy associates who pressure them to join into the condescension of their poor brethren. Then there are also the unbelieving rich. James addresses them also, especially in chapter 5. Those who, because of their wealth and their power, run over, trample, take advantage of those beneath them. Now, James doesn't specify here which audience. He doesn't say who the wealthy person is. This Mr. Goldfinger who walks in could be a believing member of the church or it could be an unbelieving visitor. He doesn't identify who the ones showing the preference, showing partiality, who those are. Are they wealthy believers seeking to impress this fellow wealthy, influential person? Or are they poorer believers who are seeking to gain favor with someone who's rich? I don't think it matters. Either way, any of those scenarios... Because you're not to do it. Whether you are wealthy and trying to maintain your status and your alliances and your your place in society, or whether you are poor and trying to gain the favor of someone who's rich, you are not to discriminate against other people. And listen, don't think that this is confined to first century Christianity. Many churches today are controlled by money. And even today, we struggle sometimes, don't we, when someone walks in and they apparently maybe are homeless. Is that person safe? I'm not saying we throw all wisdom or discernment out the window. Some people who are homeless may be on drugs. They might be out of their minds. They might be dangerous. But generally speaking, when someone who is poor or a homeless walks in, we kind of go, ooh. Now, that's not as true here. I will say that at Crossway Fellowship. I am proud as a pastor that as a whole, our church responds to the needy very well. We welcome people. You guys welcome people here. And I'm glad for that. But as a whole, many churches are controlled by money. We may hide it well, but there is hierarchy. We do show favoritism. We do treat people differently if they have money. James says it is a sin. It is duplicitous to claim faith in the Lord of glory and discriminate against other people, to show favoritism to one and neglect the other. It corrupts God's community because have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Have you not made distinctions, I think this should be understood, in yourselves? This phrase, made distinctions, is the same word that is translated as doubting and doubts. Back in chapter 1, verse 6. But let him ask in faith. Remember this verse? Let him ask in faith with no doubting, with no distinctions. 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. It's the same word. Remember this doubting is sitting in judgment on God's promise to provide wisdom. God says, if you ask me for wisdom, I will provide it. The doubter is not someone who goes, man, I just wonder, I'm having trouble with my faith. I'm having trouble trusting that the Lord will do that. That's not the doubting in chapter one, verse six. The doubting is sitting then in judgment on God's promise and saying, I don't believe that God will really do it. I believe God is two-faced. I believe God is making a promise on the one hand, but he's stringing me out with the other. Discriminating against God. It's the same word. James is saying, if you discriminate in this way, aren't you wavering in yourselves? Or are you not divided in yourself? In other words, this partiality is another manifestation of a fractured soul. These divisions within us these hypocrisies, that division in the soul that causes a person to waver in doubt, to be driven and tossed by the wind and not trust God is the same division that produces partiality. And being double-minded makes us judges with evil thoughts. Now this title or role, judges, is a, a loaded word from the Old Testament. Because the Mosaic law established a legal system, it established courts for the nation of Israel. And throughout Israel's history, during its periods of disobedience and alienation from the Lord and its departure from the covenant, these were all marked by corrupt courts, corrupt judges who abused power and corrupted justice. Which is why the Lord's prophets, like Amos, cry out, for I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy at the gate. The gate was a place of holding court, making decisions. Proverbs 31.9, the, the wisdom books of the Old Testament are also filled with this issue of corrupting justice. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Judges were those from whom the people were to hope for justice, for equity, for fairness, especially the poor. Especially they hoped to find justice and relief from those who would take advantage of them. James says, if you show partiality, you have set yourselves up like judges who have taken bribes and perverted justice. When we treat one another with this kind of partiality, favoritism, we corrupt God's community. And we replace God's standard with our own our own double-mindedness, our own double standard, do you see? So partiality corrupts God's community. It infects it. Charge number two, verse five, 
Partiality contradicts God's order. Partiality contradicts God's order. Partiality contradicts the way God operates. Now notice, James doesn't say that God has chosen only the poor, but that those who are poor in the world are not excluded from the kingdom, and that God has even been delighted to make them rich and heirs, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. In other words, God shows no partiality toward the wealthy, favoring the rich in the world, making them rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. No, instead, it is God's order, it is God's way of operating to show himself as the judge who chooses the poor, who honors those who, in the world's eyes, are insignificant by choosing them, by including them. In fact, it is absurd that you show favoritism toward the wealthy, James says. Now, this this tactic that James uses here of showing the absurdity of it is consistent, isn't it? In chapter 1, being a doer of the word, he shows the absurdity of looking into a mirror, realizing you need to correct your, your image, you're messed up somehow, and then walking away from the mirror and doing nothing about it. That's absurd. James is using the same illustration of absurdity. And you know what? He'll do it in the next section also. This is part of what ties all these together. He's showing the absurdity of showing favoritism toward the wealthy. If you're showing favoritism and partiality to those with money because they have money, you just convolute everything because you dishonor those whom God has honored and you have kissed up to the very ones who persecute you and blaspheme the Lord of glory, Christ. You have taken God's community and you have stood it on its head. Now, this picture of the rich versus the poor is, again, another picture from the Old Testament, or he's drawing upon the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the typical common situation was that the rich were proud, self sufficient, they were the wicked. The powerful. They were the ones who oppressed others. You see this throughout the Psalms, especially. Just read through the Psalms and you see it over and over again. The wealthy and the wicked are equated, typically. On the other hand, the poor are often the righteous, the vulnerable, those who are persecuted and oppressed. They are the needy. They are those who, because of their need, are humbled and therefore are seeking God, seeking justice, crying out for help, depending upon him. So James is making general statements that reflect this common scenario in life. He isn't condemning all rich people or saying that everybody with money is wicked. He is portraying this typical scenario In life, that it is those with money who are proud and self-sufficient and who oppress those 
in need, and it is typically those who are in need who are humbled and therefore seeking God. And this was the scenario that was actually being played out in these Christians' lives. Those with money, James says, are the ones who oppress you. They're the ones who drag you into court. So it is the rich who are using their influence then to guarantee favorable verdicts in court. The place where justice ought to be found was becoming the forum for exploitation because it is the rich who can bribe judges. This word drag, dragging you into court, may actually indicate that the rich were physically grabbing the poor. That's the picture anyway, and dragging them through the street to court and forcing them to stand trial. Making them face the music. Perhaps these were landowners who were suing to possess the poor man's land because of late mortgage payments. It could have been that they were seeking the collection of loan payments at excessive interest rates. Whatever it was, the picture is that these are the people who are taking advantage of you. And instead of treating them with equity as you would and treating the poor with special care, you are playing right to the very people who are oppressing and causing the discrimination. It's also these who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. Literally, it's by the name declared upon you. This is ownership. It's the, they are blaspheming the name that has been pronounced over you. So to show partiality, the wealthy over and against, to the wealthy over and against the poor is to contradict God's very order in the world. This is the way the world operates, isn't it? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kiss up to the person who can advance me, to the person who can give me an advantage in this situation, whether it's financially or status or whatever it is. That's the way the world operates. God overturns the world's order by including the poor, the outcast, the discriminated against. Instead of discriminating against them, God includes them. So for us to appease the wealthy or the influential is to befriend the very ones who oppress and persecute God's people. It's one of the tough things in our culture about mixing faith with politics, isn't it? And we see it everywhere. Showing partiality, it corrupts God's community and it contradicts God's order. The third charge, James's charge number three, partiality violates God's standard. Verse eight, partiality violates God's standard. 
James offers the alternative to showing partiality here in verse 8. Really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now remember, the law, as James has talked about the law, is not at odds with grace and the Christian life. It is the scripture they had, and the law is now illuminated. It is now clarified by the gospel. The word royal is built on the same word as kingdom in verse 5. Heirs of the kingdom, it's the same word. It's kingdom law. So James is connecting the law to the kingdom that has now come in Christ, the Lord of glory. And been established. This scripture that James quotes is Leviticus 19.18. And Jesus himself declared this commandment and his ministry, didn't he? You shall love your neighbor as yourself more than once. One example is Matthew 22 verse 39. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when James says royal or kingdom law, he doesn't mean just that line. He's saying the law in itself is the kingdom law. It's the royal law. And if you want to fulfill it, the scripture, the key is loving one another, loving your neighbor as yourself. James says, you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture when you love your neighbor as yourself. And so he's really saying the same thing that the apostle says, the apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 8 and following, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Same quote, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. So James is just saying the same thing. But, verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So you can't love your neighbor as yourself, and show partiality. To discriminate against someone is not bad judgment. It's not simply poor etiquette. It is sin. It is to violate God's standard and to be convicted, to be indicted as transgressors or violators. Now, James' logic in verses 10 and 11 seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, very simply put then, you can't, you can't, Say, I've kept the law if you break one of the commandments. 
You can't say, I fulfilled commandment number six by not committing adultery, and therefore I've kept the law, even though I have violated and broken commandment number seven, thou shalt not murder. But think hard about the point James is making here. The whole law. Guilty of all of it. If you keep the whole except for one point, you've kept none of it. Why? Because the law is a whole. We do not get to pick and choose some commandments to obey while neglecting others, not even one. In other words, there is no partial obedience. There is no partial obedience. James is not talking about keeping the law as a means of being made right with God. James is not talking here about keeping the law as a way of making yourself right. He is talking about the nature of the law. The law itself is not partial. It is not divided. You can't divide the law up into fragments or pieces and choose some and neglect others. And verse 11, think about this. He who said, thou shalt not commit adultery, is also he who said, thou shalt not murder. He who spoke the law is whom? He with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Chapter 1, verse 17. Do you see what James is doing? There is no flaw. There is no division. There is no imperfection or fracture in the person of God. And there is no flaw, no division, no fracture. No inconsistency in the word in which he has spoken. They are both perfect, whole. This is James's point. We, most of us would look at that and say, that makes total sense that you can't say I've kept the law if, because I haven't committed adultery, but I've killed somebody, I've murdered somebody. And yet... We will say, I have loved my neighbor while we discriminate against somebody else. And James is saying, you can't do it because the law is whole. To discriminate against a person is to discriminate against the law itself. To love your neighbor as yourself. Claiming to love others, but showing partiality. It is hypocrisy. It is division and fracture. As though kingdom law is fractured in the same way that you and I are. You see, we approach God 
we approach God in asking him for wisdom in chapter 1 with divisions in our hearts, and so we doubt, we sit in judgment on whether or not God will actually provide the wisdom he's promised. And then when we're facing trials, and we hear that God, we understand that God is, is, is behind the trial, we tend to say in our, in our spiritual fracture, we tend to say what? God is tempting me. No, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God is perfect. He is the father of lights. There's no inclusion in him. There is no flaw in him. Then when we hear the word, we tend to hear the word only and think that we have received the implanted word without actually doing it. Why? Because we are fractured. The word itself is not fractured. And so when we approach people, people who are different than us, we tend to do what? Discriminate against them because we are fractured and then claim, I do love my, I do love my neighbor as myself. While well, we discriminate. Do you see the picture that James is painting? James is after really one thing in this letter, and it is to confront these divisions, these hypocrisies in us. Partiality corrupts God's community. It contradicts God's order. It violates God's standard. James concludes this argument with a command, an application. Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Again, speech and action. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Speech and action. They are to be consistent with one another and with the law of liberty. The law of liberty is what we are to look at intently. It is the law of liberty, the perfect law that is the mirror, back in chapter 1, verse 25, that shows us who we really are. It's the mirror that exposes the fractures that need to be changed, the hypocrisies. So the law, the law of liberty, the perfect law, the royal law, and the whole law, are all the same thing. This is all the same law. They are all the same law as Jesus preached it and as Jesus fulfilled it. It is the word that is implanted in us. And James says we will be judged under it, meaning that everyone will have to give an account to God for showing partiality. In fact, verse 13, next verse, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If we do not show mercy, we cannot expect mercy. Mercy is the opposite of partiality. Mercy is not the opposite of justice. That's how we usually think of it, right? If I exact justice on somebody, that means that I exact punishment or consequences for what they've done. If I show mercy, in our minds, this is how we use it, if I show mercy... I let them get away with it, or I, I don't make them pay the price or the cost, the consequence for what they've done. 
So we tend to think justice on one hand, mercy on the other. Justice is always getting what you deserve. Mercy is letting you get away with something and not getting what you deserve. That's not what mercy is. Mercy is justice. It is not an alternative to justice. To show justice instead of partiality is to show mercy. That's why Micah can say in chapter Micah 6, 8, you know, O man, what the Lord has required of you to show mercy, to walk justly, act justly, show mercy, and to walk with the Lord your God. Because those two things aren't two different things, justice and mercy. To not show partiality is to show mercy, which is just, it is right. The law of liberty, the implanted word, produces mercy in the believer. If mercy is not shown, there is judgment. Now you're probably thinking, wait a second. I thought that if I believe in Christ, if I place my faith in him, I'm saved from judgment, right? Sean, you just spent a year and a half preaching Romans. And didn't you say over and over and over and over again, you cannot be justified by the law. You can't keep the law, check off all the boxes, jump through all the hoops, and therefore earn or merit a right status before God. The law cannot do that, right? I am saved because of my faith. I'm made right with God because of my faith. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, that is right. And James, maybe it's the Holy Spirit, producing his word through James, knows that our minds would go there. And it is why James will start the next section, the very next verse, chapter 2, verse 14, by asking the questions, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So the question becomes, what kind of faith do you have? That's for next time. That's for next time. But James knows, the Holy Spirit knows where we're going. When we read, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You say, but I thought it was by faith. It is a certain kind of faith. But there is a kind of faith that doesn't save And that becomes the question. Showing partiality, though, is further evidence. It is one more sin, one more fracture that has exposed this division within us that must be dealt with. How do we deal with it? Repentance. Repentance. It is watching 
It is knowing, it is allowing the scriptures to open your eyes to places where you show partiality, where you discriminate in the court of your mind against other people and then treat them differently because of it, right? And we all have to do that. We all have to look at the law of liberty intently and let it show us where we need to change. And God's grace will change you. Father, it is with that confidence and, and that knowledge and that hope, Lord, that we, that we end this passage this morning and we come before you and ask that you will expose for each of us individually, for us as a church, where we might show discrimination, where we might show partiality. Lord, we do not want to be that kind of assembly. We don't want to be that kind of people. We want to be a people who speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Lord, we trust you to illuminate those things to us. And Lord, by your spirit who lives in us to enable us to turn from them and to correct them. In your name we pray, amen.